Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. Today we're going to start off with a recipe for it's supposed to be a summer pea and roasted red pepper pasta salad. But my husband and I are trying to find some side salad dishes just so that we have something easy to eat in the fridge. And this looked particularly beautiful as the uh, seashell pasta they use the peas sometimes go in their mouth like kind of like a pearl inside of an oyster, and I just thought that was quite pretty. So we're going to have that recipe and start off with that from Smitten Kitchen. I spent way too much time this summer trying to dream up a pasta salad that wasn't boring or predictable or, well, you know, the kind of familiar pasta salad territory you don't need me to go over for you. Because I love a good pasta salad, I just don't find them often. Usually they're missing the freshness you'd expect from something you'd eat in the summer when the markets are bursting at the seams with peak season produce. Often the dressing is a throwaway, either too plain vinaigrette or heaps of mayonnaise, lending itself to more of a mass than a salad. So I knew what I didn't want. I just hadn't figured out what I did. Not for the first time, the inspiration came from a little French restaurant in our neighborhood which along with the usual deliciousness, roasted chicken, steak frites, mussels, yes please, always tucks some sort of straight-from-the-market freshness on the specials. It said, five bean salad, but what arrived was a plate, no platter of all-dent shell peas and snow peas and skinny green beans and fat yellow beans and sugar snaps and cranberry beans and favas, tossed in a roasted red pepper sauce with lots of chev tucked in. It was like a plate of summer, and even though I'm not, I'm so not the finish your plate, even if you're a full type of person, I ate the whole thing. And look at that, folks. I guess Prego finally has her appetite back, <laughs> or is emphatically craving green vegetables. Needless to say, that dish went right into this salad, although I skimped on the beans because I lack a sous chef and no pasta salad should take hours to prepare. And you can get to the pasta and whatever beans or peas you have on hand and just stop there, or you can continue with the vinaigrette. That might be my new favorite. Make extra. I think you'll be glad that you did. This is um, summer pea and roasted red pepper pasta salad. Also could be eaten during the winter. This salad would also be fantastic finished with some slivered herbs like basil, bits of soft goat cheese or crumbled feta or grated parmesan. But really, it doesn't need any of that um, to taste great, I promise. <coughs> Excuse me. For this, you're going to need one pound of small pasta. I use shells because I imagine the peas would nest in there and gah, such cuteness, and it's true. <laughs> one quarter pound of snow pea pods, ends trimmed. One half pound of fresh summer peas, which yielded about one cup once they were shelled. Three quarters to one cup of roasted red pepper vinaigrette, recipes below. Bring a large pot of salted water to a boil and prepare a small ice water bath. Boil the snow pea pods for about two minutes or until just barely cooked but still crisp. Scoop them out with a large slotted spoon and drop them in the ice water bath. Cook the peas for about 10 minutes. Once again, this will be al dente, so you can cook them longer if you prefer them softer. Scoop them out with a large slotted spoon and plunge them into the ice water bath as well. 
Drain both peas, cut the snow peas into thin slivers. Add the pasta into the boiling water and cook it according to the package instructions. Drain and let cool, then toss in a large bowl with peas and roasted red pepper vinaigrette, seasoning to taste. Here's the recipe for the roasted red pepper vinaigrette. Please don't limit your use to this to just pasta salad though. I can say with absolutely no bias that it is awesome and that it's no reason not to toss this with white beans for a quick bean salad or what your choice of mixed greens are. I like to slow roast bell peppers in the oven at 350 degrees for one hour, giving them a quarter turn with tongs every 15 minutes so they get evenly blistered, then letting them cool and peeling them. I know it's faster to blacken them over a gas flame, but the pepper never gets as subtle and sweet as I want it to. But hey, that's just personal preference, you know, in case you wanted to know. This makes about one cup of dressing. You'll need one red bell pepper, roasted, skinned, and seeded, or the equivalent from a jar, drained, one quarter cup olive oil, two tablespoons of red wine vinegar, and up to two tablespoons more if you, like us, like that extra bite in your dressing. One tablespoon of chopped shallot, that's about one small shallot, one half teaspoon of salt, and several grinds of black pepper. Puree the red bell pepper in a food processor or blender as much as possible, then add the remaining ingredients and run the machine until the dressing is silky and smooth. Adjust the vinegar level and seasonings to taste. That looks just really, really yummy. Next, we've got a recipe for arroz con pollo. I've already admitted that I've been a pretty slacky with a whole cooking dinner on a weekday night or pretty much any night thing lately. Since I would hate to deprive you of all the whiny reasons I've been inundating my husband with for not even making half an effort, I've decided to translate a few into bites for you. I'm tired. I've been working so much lately. <laughs> traveling too. If I start now, we won't eat until tomorrow. Also, I'm so tired. Charming, right? I'll bet you wish you were here. But I think that the one pot meal could be the cure for all of your kitchen ailments. Don't feel like cooking? But look, it's dinner in one pot. Don't feel like creating a pile of dishes? But it's just one pot and a knife and a plate and a spoon. But shh, I don't want to scare you off. Are you having a lot of people over? It's one steamed vegetable and an easy soup and you've got a full blown meal. Everyone arriving at different times, it's okay. The one pot meal is very forgiving of tardiness. This past weekend, it even cured my whiniest disinterest in cooking dinner. Friday night, I was in the mood for something hefty and simmery and not arriving by a delivery guy on a bike and all. And gourmet arroz con pollo fit the bill. It was delicious, warm, filling, easy to make, and equally delicious the next day, reheated. Did you hear that? I hate left. I ate leftovers, but I hate leftovers. And yet in both this dish and the fideos, I couldn't wait to dig in. I had trouble waiting for it to finally heat. And all honestly, honestly, we didn't really. <laughs> and both were from the Latin American issue of gourmet. If this is a sign, and I hope it is, I might cook just these Spanish-flavored dishes exclusively because I'm starting to think that when I wasn't in the mood to cook, I was just cooking the wrong, uninspiring things. Who knew? 
The only thing I'd change next time is to add more kick to this recipe. I'd swap the regular paprika with the spicy stuff and add quite a bit more. In addition, I might finally dice some green pepper on top instead of the pimentos or red pepper strips. I think it might be prettier, more texture contrasted garnish. Oh, and I would skip and make only a half recipe as I was actually sad when we ran out of this. That doesn't make sense to me. I think you should double it, but anyway, here we go. This serves eight, so that's quite a few. For the chicken, you're gonna need three large garlic cloves, two tablespoons of distilled white vinegar, two teaspoons of dried oregano, crumbled, four chicken breasts, halves with bone, halved crosswise, four chicken drumsticks, four chicken thighs. For the rice, you'll need three ounces of Spanish chorizo, which is cured sausage, skin discarded and sausage cut into, one quarter inch thick slice, um, one tablespoon of olive oil, two medium onions chopped, one green bell pepper chopped, three large garlic cloves chopped, two teaspoons of ground cumin, two teaspoons dried oregano, one and a half teaspoons paprika, preferably the hot stuff plus more to taste, two Turkish bay leaves or one California, one pound of tomatoes seeded and chopped, one 12 ounce bottle of beer, not dark, one and a half cups of reduced sodium chicken broth, two cups of long grain white rice, that's 14 ounces, and one quarter cup of drained rinsed bottled pimento or roasted red pepper strips. You're gonna first marinate the chicken. Mince and mash the garlic to a paste with two teaspoons of salt, then transfer to a large bowl. Stir in the vinegar and oregano. Remove skin and excess fat from the chicken, then toss the chicken with marinade until coated and marinate, covered and chilled at least one hour. Cook the chicken and rice. You're gonna cook the chorizo in olive oil in a six to seven quart heavy pot, 12 inches wide, over medium-high heat, stirring until some fat is rendered, two to three minutes. Add onions, bell pepper, and garlic and cook, stirring until softened about five minutes. Add cumin, oregano, paprika, one and a quarter teaspoon salt and bay leaves, and cook, stirring for one minute. Add chicken with the marinade to chorizo mixture and cook uncovered over medium heat, stirring frequently about 10 minutes. Then you're gonna stir in the tomatoes, the beer, broth, and rice, and bring to a boil, making sure rice is submerged. Uh, Deb note, I actually had a really hard time keeping the rice underneath the chicken so that it would cook evenly. I'd suggest that you use tongs to tempor temporarily remove the chicken from the pot and mix the rice in with the other ingredients in one pot and then replace the chicken, pressing it into the broth a bit before going into the next step. I will definitely do this next time. You're gonna reduce the heat to medium low and then cover the mixture directly with a round of parchment or wax paper and cover the pot with a tight fitting lid. Cook, stirring once or twice until rice is tender about 20 to 30 minutes. Remove from heat and let stand covered for five minutes. Discard parchment paper and bay leaves and then scatter pimento strips over the rice. As far as doing ahead, the chicken can be marinated for up to two hours in advance. Next, I'm gonna to move 
to something that just looks absolutely beautiful here, a better chocolate babka. Inadvertently, this has become Festivus week on Smitten Kitchen, wherein I air my grievances at past recipes and exhibit what I hope can be passed off as feats of strength in reformulating them for modern times. Still, nobody could be more surprised than I am that of all the recipes in the archives, it's Martha Stewart's decadent chocolate babkas from seven years ago that have ended up in this queue, because at the time we found them beyond reproach rich, buttery, crumbly, and intensely chocolatey. They were precisely what we remembered getting from the store growing up, but better, I mean, I'd hope they'd be. Clocking in at around three quarters pound of semi-sweet chocolate and almost a cup of butter per loaf, the recipe in fact uses triple this, 2.25 pounds of chocolate and 1.25 pounds of butter for three loaves. And not unlike the chicken pot pies, this, along with a messy, complicated prep, became the problem. Despite repeated requests from our families every holiday, I've probably only made it once since, if that. It's all just too much. This high holiday season, however, I decided to audition a different chocolate babka, the stunning, twisty, glossy chocolate Krantz cakes that I imagine have tempted anyone that's opened Odalenghi's Jerusalem cookbook. Although I was curious, I knew there was no way they could be as good. How could they be, what with only two and a half ounces of dark chocolate and just over a half cup of butter per loaf? It was going to taste abstemious and wrong. Abstemious chocolate babka is wrong, wrong on a moral ethical level as far as I'm concerned. And there's some beautiful photos of this babka where it's twisted um, and looks just great. But it didn't. It tasted incredible. It looked amazing. It caused an Instagram ruckus. Nobody even remembered the old babka. They just wanted more of this one as soon as possible. I almost stopped there, but a couple of things had nagged at me during the prep. So for the next holiday, I made them again. They were easier, but I felt they could be simpler still. So woe is me for this thing I pass off as a job. I was forced yesterday to make my fifth and hopefully final, um, for the hips and all of that, loaf of babka in three weeks' time. And on this one, I feel the kinks were finally worked out and it's easy as can be. The loaf fits in the loaf pan with minimal smooshing, the spiral doesn't fan out when you cut it, and I even figured out how to make it in one day, if you wish, which is important for the sort of people who see the above photos and think, I want it, I must, now. Not that we know anyone like that. <clears throat> Better chocolate babka. Here's the recipe. This is adapted from the chocolate Krantz cakes in Jerusalem, a cookbook by Yotam Odalengi and Sammy Tamimi. So each time I've made this, it's been kind of a mess. It never looks like the pictures in the books or the pretties that I've seen online. And each time it's come out of the oven and been brushed with that sugar syrup, it looks like I meant to do whatever I did. It's nearly impossible to make these look bad, trust me. And it's unequivocally impossible to make them taste bad. Whatever you do, don't even think about making bread pudding or French toast with the leftovers. Nothing good will come from it. Yield. Two loaf-size chocolate babkas. For the dough, 
you're going to need four and a quarter cups of all-purpose flour plus extra for dusting, one half cup of granulated sugar, two teaspoons of instant yeast, grated zest of one small lemon or half an orange, that's our preference, three large eggs, one half cup of water, cold is fine, and up to one to two tablespoons extra if needed, three quarters teaspoon of fine sea or table salt, two-thirds two cup of unsalted butter at room temperature, and sunflower or other neutral oil for greasing. For the filling, you need four and a half ounces of dark chocolate, or approximately three quarters cups of chocolate chips, one half cup of unsalted butter, cold is fine, scant one half cup of powdered sugar, one third cup of cocoa powder, one quarter teaspoon of cinnamon, this is optional. For the syrup, you'll need one third cup of water and six tablespoons of granulated sugar. To make the dough, you're gonna combine the flour, sugar, yeast, and zest in the bottom of the bowl of a stand mixer, and then add eggs and one half cup water, mixing with the dough hook until it comes together. This may take a couple of minutes. It's okay if it's on the dry side, but if it doesn't come together at all, add the extra water, one tablespoon at a time, until the dough forms a mass. With the mixture on low, add the salt, then the butter, a spoonful at a time, and mixing until it's incorporated into the dough. Then mix on medium speed for 10 minutes until the dough is completely smooth. You'll need to scrape the bowl down a few times. And I usually found that after 10 minutes, the dough began to pull away from the sides of the bowl. If it doesn't, you can add one tablespoon of extra flour to help this along. You're gonna coat a large bowl with oil or scrape the dough out onto a counter and oil this one and place the dough inside, cover with plastic and refrigerate. Leave it in the fridge for at least half a day, preferably overnight. The dough will not um, fully double, so don't fret if it doesn't look like it grew by more than half. So to make this on the same day, see my fourth note below. To make the filling, you're gonna melt butter and chocolate together until smooth. Stir in the powdered sugar and cocoa. The mixture should form a spreadable paste. Add cinnamon if desired. And if you're wondering what happened to the pecans and granulated sugar, see my third note below. This is the easier version, guys. <laughs> to assemble the loaves, you're gonna coat two nine by four inch loaf pans with oil or butter and line the bottom of each with a rectangle of parchment paper. Take half of the dough from the fridge, leave the other half chilled, and then roll out on a well-floured counter to about a 10 inch width, the side closest to you, and as long in length away from you as you can when rolling it thin. It's likely to be 10 to 12 inches. Spread half of the chocolate mixture evenly over the dough, leaving a half inch border all around. Brush the end furthest away from you with water, and then roll the dough up with the filling into a long, tight cigar. Seal the dampened end into the log. I found that transferring the log to a lightly floured baking tray in the freezer for 10 to 15 minutes made it much, much easier to cut cleanly in half. And then you're gonna repeat with a second dough. Trim the last half inch off of each end of the log and cut, gently cut the log in half lengthwise and lay them next to each other on the counter, cut sides up. Pinch the top ends tightly together, lift one side over the next forming a twist 
and trying to keep the cut sides facing out because they're pretty. Don't worry if the step makes a mess. Just transfer the twist as best as you can into the prepared loaf pan. And in one, one batch, mine was long enough to S inside the pan, and I nested the trimmed ends of the log in the openings. Even if you don't and choose to bake them separately in a little pan, as I did in other batches, the dough will fill in any gaps by the time it's done rising and baking, so don't worry. Cover with a damp tea towel and leave to rise another one to one and a half hours at room temperature and repeat the process with a second loaf. Bake and finish the cakes. Heat the oven to 375 degrees Fahrenheit. Remove the towels, place each loaf on the middle rack of your oven, bake for 30 minutes, but there's no harm in checking for doneness at 25 minutes. A skewer inserted into an underbaked babka will feel stretchy, rubbery inside, and may come back with dough on it. When fully baked, you'll feel almost no resistance. If your babka needs more time, put it back five minutes at a time and then retest. If it browns too quickly, you can cover it with foil. So while the babkas are baking, make the syrup. Bring sugar and water to a simmer until the sugar dissolves and then remove from the heat and set aside to cool somewhat. As soon as the babkas leave the oven, brush the syrup all over each. It will seem like too much, but it will taste just right, glossy and moist. Let cool about halfway in the pan and then transfer to a cooling rack to cool the rest of the way before eating. An adorable suggestion from Odalangi. Don't worry, we know you're gonna eat it warm. <laughs> As far as doing ahead, the babkas keep for a few days at room temperature. Longer, I'd freeze them. They freeze into frost really well. So here's a whole bunch of notes. First, I made a few ingredient changes. I used granular sugar instead of the superfine suggested because it's hard to get and it doesn't seem essential here. Unsure of what fast rising active yeast, dry yeast was, I used active dry yeast the first time and it barely rose. I used rapid rise or instant yeast, the second and third, voila. You should use this. I had large eggs instead of extra large. This wasn't a problem. I also increased the salt in the dough and add a little optional cinnamon to the chocolate filling. Oh, and we preferred orange zest over lemon in the dough. Second note, the next set of changes was structural. I found the amount of syrup to be way too much and I halved it in my second and third batches. It will still seem like a lot, but it's just right once it sinks in and glosses up. I found that rolling the log out from a 15 inch side made too long of a twisted rope to fit in a loaf pan, but a 10 inch width fit better. I got a cleaner cut from transferring the rolled log to the freezer for 10 to 15 minutes before splitting it. Third note, pecans and sugar. In the original recipe, after you spread the chocolate paste filling over the rolled out dough, you sprinkle it with pecans and sugar. And if you're me, you might mix a little extra cinnamon into that sugar. However, I found that these dry ingredients on top of the paste made it harder to assemble the final twisted shape after the log is split. They make the layers fan open and hard to manage. So I made one loaf, not photographed, without them, and it was much, much easier to manage. Between that and the fact that my family doesn't like nuts and baked goods, I will skip it going forward. But if you'd like to add them, however, you want to toast and chop one cup of pecans and have two teaspoons of sugar ready. Sprinkle half of each over the chocolate slipped 
babka dough before rolling. So note number four, to make this single day recipe, one thing I tried that wasn't terribly successful was skipping the overnighting part of the recipe. While you can let it rise at room temperature instead, you'll need three full hours for it to almost double. It's not to your advantage because the buttery dough is much, much easier to roll out and form into a log when it's cold. So if you want this to be a single day process, however, once your dough is done rising, put it in the fridge for 30 minutes before rolling it out. Trust me, letting the fridge firm up the dough helps tremendously. And number five note, without a stand mixer, this dough can be made, but the part where you need to beat and mash the butter into the tough dough will be tricky, quite an arm workout. It can and will eventually come together, however. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller.